My talk today is going to be on the topic, Global Shakespeare. And I want to start out by talking about two crucial voyages, sea voyages, that occurred during our decade, 1599 to 1609. The first one was in 1607, and it was a voyage from England to India um, with stopovers in Africa. On September 5, 1607, the British merchant ship Red Dragon was anchored in the harbor of what is today Freetown, Sierra Leone. And in that place, an actor spoke the first words of Shakespeare that were ever heard outside of Europe. And they were, who's there? The opening line of what play? Hamlet, absolutely. The ship was representing the East India Company, which, as you know, was founded in 1600. It was on its way to the very first diplomatic mission from Britain to India. And it stopped over in Sierra Leone. And there they invited on board a local king and three other Africans to watch the sailors performing Hamlet. Later on, on the voyage, they were becalmed off the coast of Africa, and they presented another play, Richard II. So you can see that uh, Shakespeare, global Shakespeare began very, very early. This is still in Shakespeare's lifetime. The second important voyage took place two years later in 1609. As you know from reading Karen Kupperman's book, those of you who did, uh, 1609 was the second fleet that set forth to Jamestown after almost everyone died two years earlier in 1607 in the first uh, group of uh, ships that went to Jamestown. They sent reinforcements and supplies two years later. And this was a quite a substantial little fleet, but it was hit by a hurricane that lasted for 48 hours. The fleet was dispersed. All the ships except one eventually limped into Jamestown, but one of the ships, in fact the flagship carrying the new colony's governor, was wrecked in Bermuda. They stayed there for a whole year. They rather liked it, and some of them never wanted to leave. But they finally built two other ships, and they set sail. They eventually did arrive in Jamestown, and two of them wrote accounts of the wreck, which were eventually published and are in your book, if you have the uh, prescribed text of the Tempest, they're in that book. These two accounts, as we know, were read by Shakespeare, and he uses them and echoes them in his last soul-authored play, The Tempest. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about The Tempest for those of you who haven't read it. The Tempest is about some Europe who are shipwrecked on an island, um, not unlike the Europeans who are shipwrecked on Bermuda. The main character, I suppose it's debatable who the main character is, but Prospero uh, is Duke of Milan. He has been ousted from his dukedom by his evil brother, and he's been cast adrift in a small leaky boat with his daughter Miranda. So here are the characters' names. They are washed up on an island which has one native inhabitant named Caliban, one fairy who's been locked in a tree by an evil magician named Ariel, and assorted supernatural spirits. 
where is this island? They did, after all, set forth from Milan, so it's possible that the island is somewhere in the Mediterranean. There are Mediterranean references in the play. But there's also a reference to Bermuda in the play, and there are New World connections as well. So for many, many years, it's been taken to be one of the first New World plays. So it's perfect for this course because it connects the old world with the new. And Caliban, if he is a New World native, is the very first New World native to appear in English literature. Now, this play has for centuries been considered a kind of document in English colonialism. And as such, it's been acted and it's been studied all over the world. It's one of Shakespeare's most loved plays and most hated and resented plays, depending on where you stand in the colonial scheme. So what we're showing you here is a number of 18th and 19th century paintings and other representations of Caliban. You see him up there on the right with his, um, with his wood, because, of course, what happens to Caliban is he gets enslaved. He is forced to speak the conqueror's language, and at one point he's given alcohol. All of these things really resonated with the world's colonized people. In the heyday of the British Empire in the 19th century, British imperialists regularly interpreted Prospero as an emblem of benign British rule, keeping the colonial savages in order. Prospero was often interpreted as the voice of Shakespeare himself, and so, of course, he gathered unto himself all of Shakespeare's huge cultural authority. Here's a typical quotation. This is from the late, um, later Empire, 1947. Prospero is said to represent England's colonizing, especially her will to raise savage peoples from superstition and blood sacrifice to a more enlightened existence. In the play, Caliban revolts against Prospero after he's, there's a period of initial harmony. This was seen in the 19th century as an emblem of the hostility and treachery of colonized natives. Caliban's attempted coup against Prospero was seen as the natural treachery of savages. Caliban's attempt to rape Prospero's daughter Miranda was viewed as typical savage lustfulness and violence, which necessitated firm governance. So as you can see, the play was used by imperialists and colonialists to justify British rule of colonies. On the other side of the coin, the colonized people resented this portrait of these superior Europeans enslaving and looking down on indigenous peoples like Caliban. The Cuban writer Roberto Fernandez Retamar wrote that Caliban uh, is a hero for Caribbeans. They identify with Caliban. Quote, this is something that we, the mestizo inhabitants of these same islands where Caliban lived, see with particular clarity. Prospero invaded the islands, killed our ancestors, enslaved Caliban, and taught him his language to make himself understood. What else can Caliban do but use that same language? Today he has no other. To curse him. To wish that the red plague would fall on him. I know no other metaphor more expressive of our cultural situation, our reality. 
George Lamming, a native of Barbados, wrote, Caliban has not lost his sense of original rootedness, and for this reason Prospero must deal with him harshly. The rock imprisonment is, in our time, a form of the emergency regulation which can forbid a son of the soil to travel outside a certain orbit. But Caliban keeps answering back. But this is getting ahead of our story. How did Shakespeare get to the Caribbean anyway? How did Shakespeare's works come to be studied and acted all over the world anyway? So this is part two. Shakespeare grows into an English national hero. So if you look back to the 17th century after the death of Shakespeare, his plays didn't fade completely out, but they were often acted in what we would consider horribly mutilated forms, sometimes two plays stuck together, often in operatic forms. So there was uh, a well-loved operatic Macbeth, which featured sexy singing witches who were always popular. England, however, in the middle of the 17th century, had a long and destructive civil war that eventuated in the monarchies being abolished, and the theaters being all closed for 20 years, a huge cultural disruption. And when it all ended and the monarchy was restored in 1688, there was still a sense that life had been completely disrupted. There was a sense of kind of national disorientation. And it has been argued that it was at this point that the English felt the need for a national hero. Now, Shakespeare was thought to be a good candidate for this position because, and this might seem surprising to us, because he had written a lot of English history plays. Now, this is surprising because Shakespeare's English history plays tend to be about periods of civil war, corrupt rule, um, totally venal politicians, and so forth. But in order to make Shakespeare into a national hero, these plays were considered to be patriotic plays. So this is at least one explanation for why Shakespeare was chosen as national hero. You can probably think up some others on your own. Anyway, he did gradually become idolized as a national hero. Good text became available of all of his plays, not just texts about singing witches, but good texts with, in addition, cheap enough for anyone to buy. In the 1730s was founded the Shakespeare Ladies Club, which erected the statue of Shakespeare in Westminster Abbey. There he is. And notice that he's clutching in his hand a manuscript page, supposedly, and the words that are on it are from The Tempest. They erected the statue of Shakespeare, and they began pressuring London theatrical companies to present Shakespeare plays, as well as their usual fare of pantomimes, spectacles, and Italian opera. Not that there's anything wrong with Italian opera. <laughs> the timing here matters, because Shakespeare became the national hero just at the very moment that Britain was acquiring its world empire. So you've probably often heard that Shakespeare is known and loved all over the world because there's something universal about his works and his themes. 
or because human nature is the same everywhere and Shakespeare had a great insight into human nature. We've all heard these explanations. But there is another more cynical explanation for how Shakespeare got spread all over the world, and that is that the British Empire spread him all over the world at gunpoint. Well, before we turn to the, the spread throughout the world, I'd like to tell you about one more impetus to Shakespeare's becoming this great national hero. And that is the great Shakespeare jubilee in Stratford-upon-Avon in 1769. 1764 would have been a better date, but they kind of missed it. <laughs> that would have been the 200th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. But they weren't thinking in tourist terms quite quickly enough. So in 1769, they finally um, woke up to the possibilities. This was promoted by the great actor-manager named David Garrick who planned and paid most of the expenses personally for a jubilee in Stratford-upon-Avon. He had made his career playing Richard III and other Shakespearean roles, and he absolutely worshipped Shakespeare. In fact, he had a temple built to Shakespeare on the grounds of his house. And that you see on the right is um, Garrick as Richard Well, Both of these are Garrick as Richard III. Enter the mulberry tree. A mulberry tree was supposed to have been planted by Shakespeare. Shakespeare, when he retired, um, left London, went back to Stratford-upon-Avon, bought a very big house called New Place, and supposedly planted a mulberry tree on its grounds. This is all legend. In the 18th century, New Place was owned by a clergyman, and he got so annoyed by curiosity seekers that he had the mulberry tree cut down. This so enraged the townspeople that they stoned his house and broke out some windows. And as you can imagine, this was sort of a long-standing feud between the clergyman and the townspeople. And it was such a bad feud that in retaliation for their breaking out his windows, he had the house torn down. So you can visit the site now, but there's nothing left. There's a new house there, and there's nothing left but gardens. Very Shakespearean gardens. Now, the mulberry tree was bought by a clockmaker named Sharp, who for years manufactured souvenirs out of it. For the rest of his life, in fact, he manufactured cups, goblets, punch ladles, card cases, cribbage boards, tobacco stoppers, toothpick cases, ink horns, knives and forks, nutmeg graters, and comb cases. So there's a picture of a, that's a tea chest that was manufactured supposedly out of the mulberry tree. Now David Garrick, when he came to town, had a hundred willow trees cut down right on the banks of the Avon River and used the space to build a rotunda in which he was going to stage his great jubilee. The hundred willow trees were bought by, guess who, the clockmaker named Sharp, who used them to prolong his supposed mulberry tree supply for, for many years. Garrick then commissioned a statue of Shakespeare, but while it was being carved, they noticed that the Marble was faulty. It had all sorts of blue veins running through it. 
And when the sculptor was sculpting the head, a great smear of blue appeared right across Shakespeare's lips. And Garrick is supposed to have said, Ha! Mulberries! (laughs) (laughs) Well, the corporation of Stratford-upon-Avon, which is the city fathers, basically, hearing of Garrick's worship of Shakespeare virtually bribed him to sponsor the Jubilee. It didn't really take much, but they wanted to be sure that he would sponsor this jubilee. So they gave him the freedom of the city of Stratford, which was really a pokey little village at the time, and presented him with a box carved out of mulberry. (laughs) And they sent him a poem. This is how it went. We soon do hope to see thee at our glorious jubilee, and from our Avon's flowery banks accept our corporation's thanks. For the honor thou dost we by coming to our jubilee, and in a box of mulberry tree of our town we make thee free. Poetic talent seems to have declined somewhat in Stratford (laughs) since Shakespeare's death. The jubilee was a three-day extravaganza with processions, orations, an oratorio, huge banquets, and a masquerade ball. It was attended by fashionable Londoners, by people of many classes from all across England, including a 28-year-old James Boswell, who, of course, was the uh, biographer of Samuel Johnson. He recorded everything in his diary. So we know from him that the town was absolutely jammed, that the prices of hotel accommodations and restaurants skyrocketed, There was insufficient stabling for the horses, and horses were running loose in the streets. It was a muddy town to start with. But Garrick was undaunted by all of this. He recited with choral accompaniment an ode to Shakespeare, peppered with allusions to the plays that he'd been acting in all of his career. By the time the the festival ended, it was noticed that not a single line of Shakespeare had been recited (laughs) or performed, but instead original poems and songs abounded, such as, and here's one of the best poems, The pride of all nature was sweet Willie-O. The first of all swains, he gladdened the plains. None ever was like to sweet Willie-O. He charmed him when living, the sweet Willie-O, and when Willie died, t'was nature that sighed to part with her all in her sweet (laughs) Willie-O. Well, then it started to rain, and it rained all through the second day, and it rained all through the third day. There was supposed to have been a fireworks spectacular on Clopton Bridge. Clopton Bridge is still there. Uh, They were going to shoot off amazing fireworks from the bridge, but that had to be canceled because of the rain. Also, they had to cancel uh, a procession in which 217 people were supposed to have paraded through the main street of the town, dressed in all of Shakespeare's characters' attire. All these costumes were borrowed from the Drury Lane Theater, of which Garrick was the actor-manager, but that had to be canceled. Not long after singing a newly written tune, Thou Softly Flowing Avon, they opened the doors of the rotunda, and the softly flowing Avon flowed into the rotunda. (laughs) People were still dancing at the masquerade ball at 3 o'clock in the morning, and 
finally, they had to swim to their carriages to get home. The morning after the festival ended, hundreds of people were stranded because there weren't enough carriages to take them home. Boswell wrote dismally in his journal, the true nature of human life began now to appear. After the joy of the jubilee came the uneasy reflection that I was in a little village in wet weather and knew not how to get away. So part three, global Shakespeare. Shakespeare was now firmly established as the national poet and was spread around the globe, largely in the first instance by the spread of the British Empire. And on the screen while I talk, I'm just going to ask Ryan to put up a number of images of Shakespeare from all around the world. These are modern Im images. The role of English teaching is very interesting in, in this regard. It was connected with colonial governance. Now, at this time, there was no such thing as an English major back at home in England. If you went to, uh, to university there and you wanted to study literature, you studied classical Greek and Roman literature. The first um, chair of English literature was not until the very, very last years of the 19th century. Um, and the first uh, professor of English literature um, at Oxford, whose name was Walter Raleigh, wasn't the original Walter Raleigh, but a much later one, in the late 19th century, had earlier taught at the Anglo-Oriental College in Aligarh in England, in uh, India. And it's thought that English as a discipline, for those of you who are English majors here, took shape out in the colonies and then was re-exported back to England. Well, why was English taught so much out in the colonies? Well, remember how um, the Europeans taught Caliban their language. <laughs> it was a theory that if you, if you forced people to speak English, it would help to govern them. Uh, Anya Lumba, who spoke here in the fall as part of Moments of Change, argues that the teaching of English literature, and particularly Shakespeare in India, was a tool of imperial governance. And what she means is that very early on in the empire, the crucial decision was taken not to interfere with local religious practice and belief. There were, of course, um, English missionaries who went out, but they were not official tools of the government. And it's odd because England had a state church at home, but they didn't establish a state church out in the colonies. Instead, they said that they wanted to teach everyone um, English culture and English values, especially English literature, especially Shakespeare. So Shakespeare literally took the place of the Bible out in the colonies as what was seen as um, a socializing and um, civilizing tool. Of course, it was rather presumptuous to think that they were civilizing India, which had a much older civilization than Britain, but this was the theory. The British Empire, of course, was the most extensive empire that the world has ever known. There was a saying that the sun never sets on the British Empire, which means, of course, because when the sun is going down one part of the empire, it's just coming up in another part of the empire. 
Although the French always said that the sun never sets in the British Empire because the Lord doesn't trust them in the dark. (laughs) I must apologize to my British husband who's out in the audience. (laughs) Uh, Outside the British Empire, Shakespeare was also spreading. The Caribbean is an interesting case because the Caribbean uh, was governed by a number of different empires. The English were there. The Spanish, the French, and the Dutch were all in the Caribbean. But uh, Shakespeare had already spread to France during the 18th century, so the French exported him into their colonies. The English, of course, exported them into their colonies. And in other parts of the world, were not not covered by the British Empire. The British Empire, of course, was immense. It covered uh, parts of Africa, Canada, Australia, us at one time, um, parts of Asia. The British Empire was literally all around the world. But places where there were other imperial ventures, they also spread Shakespeare because Shakespeare had come to them um, or in pre- immediately pre-imperial times. I mean, that, this is the last one of those... Um, spread of Shakespeare slides. I really like the Shakespeare Club in Montreal in 1847. Part six, then, the end of empire. So the question here is, what happened to Shakespeare during the dismantling of colonialism, which was going to take place over a century or so as uh, colonies became independent? During or shortly after the struggles of various British colonies for independence, uh, critics and educators and creative writers often felt that what was holding back colonial cultures was what they saw as the dead hand of English education, that they were all educated under this British system. They were forced to learn English. They were forced to learn English literature. They were forced to learn Shakespeare. They wanted to be free of all that. So they revolted against uh, British education. And one of the things that they would do is throw Shakespeare out of their curriculum if they could. Uh, One of the plays that was a crucial testing ground was the play that we all read for this week. And uh, and all of us are going to be discussing it. um, All of the students are going to be discussing it on Wednesday, The Tempest. The Tempest was a crucial text because it seemed so much like the British Empire in action. And it's fascinating to think how early the Tempest is. Tempest is 1611, so we we sort of illegally squeaked it into our our, um, decade here on grounds that its its sources lie in the um, Bermuda pamphlets of 1609. The play was written in 1611, and this is before England had any colonies, anything like an empire, even starting. This is before the world really knew the whole imperial system. And yet, in so many ways, the play seems to anticipate what happened in in, uh, imperial practice. So it became a sort of um, battleground for imperialist versus anti-imperialist ideas. So where at home in England, Prospero had been seen as a benevolent colonist, out in the colonies, <coughs> colonies he was read as a tyrant and slave master.
Caliban's resistance was seen as justified. When Prospero reports that Caliban has tried to rape his daughter, this was seen as the typical fear of miscegenation that so often served as a pretext in the colonies for suppressing the male population. As for the so-called treachery of Caliban after his initial hospitality, colonial writers pointed out that historically, natives received Europeans with their usual protocols of hospitality. So they would welcome them in. Uh, there would be, as, as we saw, uh, Karen Kupperman um, telling us last time, singing and dancing and uh, exchange of civilities. But gradually, it would become clear to the native populations that these Europeans wanted to stay and keep all their land, <laughs> at which point things would turn a bit hostile. This is how Caliban was read from the colonial side. He was uh, a native who had been friendly until it appeared that he was going to be enslaved and that the land was going to be taken by the Europeans, and then he turned hostile. Besides um, discussions in classrooms out in the empire about um, what Caliban was all about, there were lots of people who wrote books about Caliban from the sort of the, the colonized point of view. And then there were lots of people who rewrote The Tempest and sometimes made Caliban the hero and Prospero the villain. So on your handout, I've given you a number of retellings of The Tempest. Some of them are in a colonial setting. Some of them are, are in outer space. <laughs> they all have these issues of power and domination and intruders um, into a, an area uh, that hadn't known uh, Europeans before. Let me just point out a couple um, that are listed on your, your handout there. Aimé Césaire of Martinique wrote a very interesting rewrite of The Tempest in which the aerial figure is supposedly modeled on Martin Luther King Jr. and the Caliban figure is modeled on Malcolm X. Percy McKay wrote a huge um, extravaganza that was enacted for Shakespeare's 300th birthday. So this might have been a, you know, a century later's answer to the great Shakespeare Jubilee. This is in um, 1916. That doesn't compute. It must have been 350th birthday, sorry. It had a cast of 7,000 people. <laughs> and it had um, people of all different um, national origins in various national costumes all coming together around a Shakespeare play. So it was meant to, to give an image of sort of uh, national harmony, sort of like, you know, small world at Disneyland or something, of international harmony. Then there was a film, Forbidden Planet, which some of you may remember from many years ago. The aerial figure in that is played by Robbie the Robot. <laughs> well, leaving these... Um, rewrites of The Tempest. Part five, I want to ask the question, what about us as Americans? Because the United States, of course, was also a former colony of the British Empire. We left a little earlier than quite a few other colonies. In fact, we left before the height of the British Empire, before the policies of spreading Shakespeare all around the world. So we were never subject to sort of 
force-fed Shakespeare, as many other colonies were. But oddly enough, we turned around and accepted Shakespeare as a kind of national poet on our own initiative. So to give you an example, in April of 1786, so this is 10 years after the Revolutionary War between Britain and the U.S., John Adams and Thomas Jefferson made a trip together to Stratford-upon-Avon, where they saw a number of tourist attractions, including an old chair in which Shakespeare was supposed to have sat. And according to custom, they each cut a chip off the chair and took it home. And then I want to tell you about the Folger Shakespeare Library. That's not it. <laughs> That's Folger. This is this is Henry Clay Folger, who was president of Standard Oil. And he founded what is now unquestionably the greatest Shakespeare library in the world. And he very deliberately wanted it to be in Washington, D.C. pictures of those? There. That's the main reading room. It's modeled on the great hall of an English uh, baronial palace. And the exterior is... You can see on the left here, there are a number of uh, reliefs. So those are all scenes from Shakespeare plays. And what do you see peeking up on the right there? That, of course, is the Capitol Dome. Because the Folger Shakespeare Library is on Capitol Hill, right behind the Library of Congress. Right, you know, right within a stone's throw of the Capitol Dome. And that was very deliberate. Um, the first director of the library, William Slade, made a speech at the funeral of Folger and noted that Washington, Lincoln, and Shakespeare are the three whom Americans universally worship. Then he pointed out that if you drew a line from the Folger Shakespeare Library through the Capitol building and extended it onward, it would all but touch the monument to Washington and the memorial to Lincoln. So Washington, Lincoln, and Shakespeare... Do you remember that old Sesame Street song, One of These Things is Not Like the Others? <laughs> there are several very strange things about Americans adopting Shakespeare. First of all, of course, American colonies had revolted against England. Now they're adopting England's national poet as almost their own. The American Revolution was supposed to be a break with tradition politically. It was a break with monarchy and aristocracy. And yet people talked about Shakespeare in America in terms of preserving cultural tradition, even though the government that he wrote about was monarchic and aristocratic. And Shakespeare's characters are deeply suspicious of democracy. They call it mob rule. So why did we adopt him? And another thing. Four years after Shakespeare's death, 1616, oh, that's why 1916 was the 300th anniversary of Shakespeare's death when that, um, that huge extravaganza was. Shakespeare died in 1616. In 1620, four years later, Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded. Um, they, the two main Massachusetts colonies were founded by Puritans, but the Puritans who didn't flee to Massachusetts and who stayed in England instead, you know what they did. They closed the theaters. 
Um, the people who left England for religious freedom left partly because they saw England as being sunk in a state of immense cultural decadence. And one of the prime exhibits of this cultural decadence was that there were stage plays. So the Puritans who stayed closed the theaters, and the Puritans who came here ended up adopting a playwright as their national poet. <laughs> Go figure. Well, what are some explanations for Shakespeare's appeal to Americans? Ralph Waldo Emerson was very keen on Shakespeare, and he was very influential, of course. He saw Shakespeare's individualized characters, and, by the way, his own character, as analogous to American rugged individualism. And he made a number of sort of proselytizing speeches to this effect. One of these talks was heard by Henry Clay Folger, who was thereby inspired to go out and uh, found the Folger Library. Folger bought up collections of wealthy English families and saw himself as liberating these books from the undemocratic English aristocracy and freeing American Shakespeare scholars from dependency on England and on the noblesse oblige of owners of great houses. So he uh, founded this Shakespeare library in the spirit of American democracy. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been there has anyone here been there? Did you get, how far in did you get? <laughs> oh, fantastic, in a theater. That's great. And the picture that I showed you of the Great Hall, um, if you go in as, as a middle school student or as a tourist or whatever, they will open up the curtains and you can peek in and see people like me in there um, studying because you're not allowed into the main hall unless you have a PhD in English specializing in Shakespeare. So, <laughs> so, so much for democracy. Well, I'll leave it to you again to come up with other reasons why Americans sort of adopted Shakespeare as their own. Shakespeare, of course, has been installed in the standard curriculum of the American educational system for a long time. He's nearly universally taught in American high schools and colleges. Recently, as I'm sure you know, there's been a huge uproar because it was, has been discovered that some colleges and universities are no longer requiring Shakespeare of all their English majors. We are one of them, by the way. We, we require Shakespeare of everyone who's going to teach high school, but not of other kinds of English majors. This, of course, was seen as heralding the decline of civilization. Shakespeare has been at the center of wars over the literary canon. So during the last couple of generations, the literary canon has been expanding to include writings by African Americans, Latinos, Latinas, gays and lesbians, women. Um, there's been an outcry against letting all these people into the canon. And the reason they shouldn't be let in is always said to be because they might edge out Shakespeare. So Shakespeare is seen as this kind of bastion. Uh, the idea that Shakespeare should be the center of the American literary curriculum goes back quite a long way and originally had a rather xenophobic aroma. Joseph Quincy Adams, who was the second director of the Folger Library, good American name, said in his inaugural statement in 1932, about the time the forces of immigration 
became a menace to the preservation of our long-established English civilization, there was initiated throughout the country a system of free and compulsory education for youth. In a spirit of efficiency, that education was made stereotyped in form. And in a spirit of democracy, every child was forced by law to submit to its discipline. <laughs> in our fixed plan of elementary schooling, Shakespeare was made the corner of cultural discipline. Not Homer, not Dante, not Goethe, not Chaucer, nor Spencer, nor even Milton, but Shakespeare was made the chief object of their study and veneration. Well, ever since Shakespeare was seen as a sort of bastion against immigrants, uh, Shakespeare has often been presented as the sort of law and order candidate, a darling of the political right. But I should point out that he can just as easily be championed by the left, and is. In his King Lear, which was first acted in our period, 1605-1606, an autocratic king himself reaches the rather leftist conclusion that his government has not done enough for the poor and homeless. Well, let me just um, finish by saying that Shakespeare will never stop provoking controversy. Because his plays give voice to people on the political right and the political left, the colonizers and the colonized, those who fear immigration and those who are immigrants themselves. In our lifetime, we have seen impassioned essays and enraged diatribes about Shakespeare, from the American neoconservative William Bennett to the Cuban communist Roberto Fernandez Retamar. Can you guess which is which? <laughs> How great is that? Still able to inspire passion and rage in the hearts of his hearers when he wrote 400 years ago. Thanks. Thank you, Ryan. Questions and comments? Yes, exactly. And I think it's a big mistake to try to pin it down, but as you say, people are always trying to do it. They People have picked up every little reference. You know, there's a reference to Algeria in it. So, oh, it must be in the Mediterranean. There's a reference to Bermuda. It must be in, in the Caribbean. Um, but I think that you're absolutely right that it's its openness that makes it um, that makes it a candidate for this kind of rewriting. And um, certainly, uh, almost everything Shakespeare wrote that's set in a foreign land was seen in its own time as secretly about England <laughs> at one time or another. <laughs> and I think that, um, that that's happened with The Tempest more than almost any other play because it's been rewritten so many times. But yeah, I think that that's a good point, that the, amb the ambiguity is it's maybe sloppy, but it's certainly been very, very productive. Not that Shakespeare would be sloppy. <laughs> yes. Utopia being said to be in Hungary because it couldn't, such things could not be located in England. In this play, in fact, there is um, a scene where one character speaks of utopia and, and a golden age myth, and he talks about the, the perfect society and how perhaps it could, you know, he would like to found it here on this island. Of course, what I didn't say when I was doing the introduction to the play was that all of the enemies of Prospero are eventually themselves shipwrecked on the island. 
And one of them is uh, saying this island could be utopia. And others are sitting around, and uh, we talked about this in my class the other day, sitting around criticizing them and saying there is no such thing as utopia. There is no human place where utopia could be, and especially not here on this deserted island. Oh, good. And that is King Lear, uh, raging out on the heath with his uh, fool behind him. In addition to all these reliefs, there is a um, statue of Puck that was also always out on the lawn. And he was getting too weather damaged, so now they've taken him in and replaced him with a, a copy. But it, it says on the bottom of Puck, Lord, what fools these mortals be. So it's a wonderful place to visit. And they have a... They celebrate Shakespeare's birthday every April 25th or so and with balloons and all. Go down there sometime. There's also a theater, a small uh, Jacobean-style theater right in the library. As you were involved in that. They have wonderful productions there, and they also have programs for middle school and high school students to come there and learn how to act. Mm, no. <laughs> The question of whether Shakespeare really wrote Shakespeare. Uh, I could refer you to a couple of really good websites that rehearse all the evidence. Um, typically, the people who um, say that Shakespeare was not Shakespeare uh, are very passionate about it, but they suppress an awful lot of information. They say that you know none of his plays had his name in, in his lifetime, which is not true, and... Um, so I, I would rather give you the websites than go through um, all the information. I will tell you an anecdote, though. Uh, some years ago, I was president of the Shakespeare Association, and the Earl of Oxford, the present Earl of Oxford, turned up at our annual meeting where we were having a big luncheon with about 500 people. And one of the candidates for who Shakespeare might have been was the then Earl of Oxford, and this was his distant descendant who now makes his living going around claiming that his ancestor was Shakespeare. And he requested um, permission to speak at the luncheon of the Shakespeare, of the Shakespeare Association, I guess he'd call it. And uh, I took the decision that he should not speak. So, <laughs> so I'm on the side of Shakespeare being Shakespeare. So, um, the question was how much do I know, which is nothing about um, Mozart's plans to write an opera of The Tempest, and Marr says that it is true, but that nothing ever came of it. Mm -hmm. No, I don't know that one. Uh, there are lots more than the ones that are on this list. Uh, there are about, I think, about 40 altogether that I could have put down, and I don't know that one, but I, if you could jot down information about it, I'd like to know about it. Yes. Yes. Um, should, did Shakespeare have significant contemporaries? This is playwrights, right? Who, whose fame lived after them as his did. Um, during the 17th century, uh, I don't know if you know the playwrights Beaumont and Fletcher. They wrote a lot of plays in collaboration with each other, and then they wrote a lot of plays separately. Uh, Fletcher collaborated with Shakespeare probably on... on um, Shakespeare's very last play, Henry VIII. Beaumont and Fletcher were more popular than Shakespeare throughout a good deal of the 17th century. Uh, ben Jonson, who was a, a contemporary of Shakespeare's, was also popular in the 17th century. 
Uh, Christopher Marlowe, not so much, uh, came on again later. But Shakespeare was one of many in the 17th century. He was thought to be very good. People did know his name. He hadn't gone into total eclipse. But he didn't, st- he didn't stand out as we would see him as this towering figure in a bunch of pygmies. We talked about great innovators in this class. And I'm wondering, first of all, if Shakespeare can be considered a great literary innovator. Um, and if so, was he subject to any attacks during his lifetime, much like we saw Caravaggio being attacked, Monteverdi being attacked by contemporary um, authors? Um, yes. The, the question of whether he was an innovator, yes, in many ways. Um, and I think, well, there's a, there's a debate about this. The, the genre of the English history play, uh, which I mentioned before, Shakespeare um, was one of the inventors of this genre. And Shakespeare wrote uh, an eight-play sequence, which there's nothing quite like it anywhere else in English literature, that's eight consecutive plays dealing with the reigns of consecutive kings. And uh, that was a great innovation. Um, Shakespeare was attacked in his lifetime, um, I think I mentioned this before, that the very first surviving uh, mention of Shakespeare is an accusation of plagiarism, (laughs) that Robert Greene thought that he had plagiarized his work, and in fact he had, um, and went right on merrily plagiarizing from Greene right up until his second to last play. Um, Because, and we were talking about this in class the other day, plagiarism was not seen as theft so much then as it is now. Times were just beginning to change. Literature was just starting to be seen as property in this period. But it had, it, it had been a system of more sort of freely circulating material. So he was attacked for that. Um, he was attacked for, and I think I did mention this when we were talking about um, innovations in the period, he was attacked for not sticking to uh, the supposedly Aristotelian practice of unity of time, place, and action. And I, th- I might have mentioned then that there's only one play in the entire Shakespeare corpus of 37 plays that pretty much sticks to the unity of time, place, and action, and that's his last play, The Tempest. Uh, otherwise, he merrily just disregards the idea that you're supposed to have unity of time. So in several of his uh, late plays, he disregards unity of time, which is the, you know, the, the, the idea that the time that the play takes to act should be the, pretty much the same time it would take to do the same action in real life. Well, in Shakespeare's plays, uh, The Winter's Tale and Pericles, there's a 16-year gap in the middle of the play. <laughs> Um, the unity of, of place was that you were supposed to stay in one place, which, of course, the Tempest does because it's on an island. But most Shakespeare plays just move all over the place. And uh, Ben Johnson made terrific fun of Shakespeare for he said, because um, in Henry V, Shakespeare had a chorus come out and say, I know that you think we're in England, but you don't have to imagine now that we're moving to France. And Johnson said, jangling chorus wafts us o'er the seas and thought that that was absurd. So, yes, I mean, he was attacked in his own time. 
I'd just like to ask about a different sort of innovation and whether uh, I remember in the, in the opening forum for Moments of Change, which was in November, September? September? Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> um, a professor of theater mm -hmm. talked about Shakespeare's uh, speech in Hamlet to the players in which he says, speak the speech, I pray thee trippingly on the, on the tongue. As, as being a, um, a, a new sort of acting in the day, mm -hmm. an, an amazingly more naturalistic style of acting, mm -hmm. perhaps the break, as the break between uh, Shakespearean acting and uh, the um, actor studio was, Marlon Brando, people mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you agree with that and whether you... I hope it's true. Uh, I, I'm not sure that there's enough evidence for us really to know. I mean, there are um, there are drawings of of plays being acted, where sometimes there are you know histrionic gestures like that. But there are other drawings of plays that seem quite naturalistic. Um, in Hamlet, um, Claudius, the evil king, who in, uh, is given to very stilted rhetoric, uh, talks about how we are, um, the court is going about with one auspicious and one drooping eye. That is, one of their eyes is pointing up and one down because they're happy that uh, the new king has just got married, but they're sad that he's married the, you know, dead king's wife <laughs> and that the, the other king is dead. So that indicates a kind of very stiff and stilted kind of acting, but then he's a stiff, stilted kind of, uh, of king, you know. So I, I think the jury is still out on that one. And, and the other question I'd ask about that is whether other playwrights were as uh, uh, eclectic and voracious in grabbing uh, events of the time and melding them into these plays. I mean, there are the shipwrecks, but this was performed for the, the, the marriage of James' daughter, right? Right. And also the um, uh, Emperor Rudolph had just been deposed, basically, mm -hmm. because he was too much of an occultist. Right. And, and, I mean, it's just a phenomenal number of historical associations. And were other people doing this, or was he yes. unique? They were. Yes, I think they were. If you look at, um, for example... Uh, Thomas Middleton, who we don't we don't read him so much these days or see his plays, but he wrote as many plays as Shakespeare. Some of them extraordinarily good plays, and there's just finally been the very first one-volume complete works of Middleton that's just been published last week. <laughs> um, he was like that. He picked up things that were that had just happened. So, for example, in Chase Made in Cheapside, he talks about a new windmill that has just been built, and it was built just months before we know that the play was first on stage. Uh, ben Johnson uses all kinds of contemporary slang, which um, needs more footnotes. <laughs> I mean, I know we have a lot of notes explaining the, the language of Shakespeare, but the slang in, in Ben Johnson is so up-to-date and so, uh, so re was so recent to his time, and slang has such a short shelf life. Mm -hmm. It makes it a little bit hard to read. But yes, I think sometimes they're setting plays like King Lear way back in the Middle Ages, but even so, you will get allusions to very, right, right. very current events. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we call it a day? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.